Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert who has risen in hell's hierarchy, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor and blood of a bygone decade, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we are going to be talking about A Hope in Hell and Passengers, issues four and five from Sandman Volume 1, Preludes and Nocturnes. Both titles were written by Neil Gaiman and illustrated by Sam Keith and Mike Dringenberg. Through your dreams, my sleeping children, you had a passenger and you never knew. Time to wake up. All right, everybody, today, a little warning before we begin. Some of the content we are discussing from today's material does deal with suicide, so make your own choices about whether or not this is something that you are ready to listen to. Um, If not, then please come back anytime. We'll be here because it's recorded and it's going to be there forever. Alisa, how are you doing today, honey? I'm exhausted and loopy, so (laughs) this will be fascinating. (laughs) Oh, that makes the best podcast material. It really, really does. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right. So here we are. We're talking about A Hope in Hell and Passengers, issues four and five of Preludes and Nocturnes. So what we're going to start with is our overall response to both of these issues. Um, How do you like them? What do you think? Well, I, I... All of these I loved. I loved them the first time when I read them, and I'm loving them now, which is really great because mm-hmm. there uh, there have been other things, which is a, a younger person I adored, and I look at it now and I think, oh, it's mm-hmm. it feels more remote, which was the style in writing then, or it feels clunkier. None of that. So looking at this, I feel that issues one through three were concerned with world building and laying the groundwork for this first story arc. Now with issues four and five, we're really declaring a worldview and staking a claim to a really broad range of tones. We may be deep in the land of horror here, but it's horror with a hopeful heart. And there are these wonderful side excursions into old comic stuff. It's also where Sandman began to really find its audience. I unearthed a a, a 2013 interview in The Guardian, uh, which is an English newspaper. Mm -hmm. And Neil was saying that, you know, for the first eight issues, he just assumed that it was not, he he, he would get a very short, limited run. And, um, And every comic he said he liked doing before had been a commercial failure. So mm-hmm. issue one, I think he said, was in October 1988. It had great sales. Mm-hmm. And then issues two, three, and four saw a downward spiral. And then mm-hmm. on issue five, they started this low, slow but steady climb upward. And then it became a juggernaut. This can really wow. reassure any of us who are not instantly finding our audiences with a series. Yeah, sometimes it takes a little time. You know, sometimes it takes a little while for everybody to find you, you know. Um, And I love that, you know, that it was really starting to kind of like pick up with these issues because I think these issues are really fun. Like you said, we did all this world building. Now we're kind of getting into this story, right? We've got a protagonist with a goal, right? And they're moving toward it and they're providing the motive force, all of that stuff. It's really, really fun. Um, You know, I generally like, as I've said, I don't like horror, which is really, really funny because I spent a lot of time like talking about Buffy 
Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which of course is, you know, as I put my finger quotes up, horror, right? It's more comedy and uh, deep emotional stuff, but it's vampires and demons and, you know, violence and all that kind of stuff. Um, and generally, I don't really like horror because I have a, an overly active empath gland or whatever that is, whatever the source of that is, it's overly active for me. Um, and so when I see people in fear and I see people in pain, I feel it, especially, especially the fear. And as someone who has kind of had to deal with a lot of anxiety, you know, throughout my life, um, I tend to want to avoid fear. Like I don't, I don't dig it, you know, um, at the same time, you know, I give these kind of the same paths that I give Buffy. Buffy is, you know, a, a story that I've been talking about for years and years. And I've learned more from, you know, engaging with Buffy as more as a writer and a storyteller than I have from probably any other single piece of fiction. Um, and I'm finding I'm getting the same feeling about this. Um, because in the end, any genre, there are certain hallmarks of particular genres. You know, sci-fi is, is basically, you know, tech technology creating a philosophical question that you can examine. Fantasy, of course, is in the, the realm of magic and metaphor. Um, you know, romance has a romantic love story at the, at the center of it. Um, so all of these genres have those things, but stories themselves have, you know, human, I mean, and again, even, even though, of course, Sandman is not human, he is coded as human. We see his experience through a human lens. All monsters and mythological, they're all coded as different kinds of human experiences, representations, distillations of human experience. Um, and, and there is something about Dream that I connect to the humanity in him, you know, and, and having him as the anchor that is leading me through this experience, I'm finding myself really enjoying it. It's so narratively dense. It's so interesting. It's so much fun. And I'm really loving it. I, I was thinking as you were talking about horror, how at the same mm -hmm. time that Sandman was being written, there was also Hellblazer, which is John Constantine's book. And that was written by Jamie Delano. That was a horror book which had a very different feel. It was um, very political and it was it had a more cynical and world weary feel. You got the feeling that, you know, it, it, in the end, it would not things would not go well which sort of mm -hmm. suits John Constantine. And it, it had more of a satirical heart. There is something, you know, we'll talk a lot more, but there's something hopeful at the heart of all this horror. Yeah. Yeah, which is really a wonderful kind of mix of flavors to have. So before we get into the big detail, let's go ahead and hit our summaries. So, a hope in hell. It's scavenger hunt time as the King of Dreams pays a visit to hell to reclaim his lost helm, an archaic word for helmet, from the unknown demon that got it in a trade. Dream discovers that the Bowie-esque Lucifer is no longer in sole charge of his kingdom, which I believe makes hell a parliamentary system. Dream uses classic fairy tale hero ingenuity as he navigates the tricky business of negotiating with demons. After Dream cleverly uses his pouch of dream sand to determine which of Hell's innumerable demons has his helm, he agrees to battle Choranzun in a borscht belt version of the classic transformation battle between two magicians, which you would know about if you'd finished your PhD in comparative mythology. 
Hope seems to be the theme of this issue, but just as the Sandman trots off, his hopes fulfilled, we get an epilogue that shows us Arkham Asylum's toothless puppy of an occultist, John D, getting a deathbed gift from his mother, an eyeball amulet that answers D's hopes and dreams. In Passengers, we open in Arkham Asylum, where John D. escapes naked and hijacks a woman driving alone at night, telling her she's going to drive him to find his ruby. Meanwhile, Scott Free is having nightmares about his childhood at the JLI Embassy when he wakes up to see Dream sitting on his bed. Dream also wants the ruby. In the car, Dee's hostage offers him a coat of her husband's to wear so he doesn't freeze. At the JLI, Scott searches the database and finds very little useful information, so he takes Dream to talk to the last Martian, who tells him that the ruby is in a warehouse in the upstate Gotham town of Mayhew. As John D. rides with his hostage, Rosemary, they talk. She is kind to him. She asks him about himself. D. tells her what he did to the ruby, that he transformed it into a solid dream that only he can use. In the headlights, we see the sign for Mayhew. Dream gets there first, but when he touches the ruby, he finds it corrupted and he falls to the ground. Rosemary drops John D. off at the warehouse. She tells him to keep the coat. He shoots her in the face. He goes inside the warehouse, picks up his ruby from the floor next to Dream's unconscious body, and heads with it to a 24-hour diner where he plans to sit and wait for the end of the world. Okay, Elisa, wow, these two issues. And having read ahead at the 24-hour diner, whoo, next week is going to be a discussion, but that is next week's problem. Um, all right, so for <laughs> these issues, what are, the th what are the thoughts that you're having about these narratives? I think that they stake out two very different territories of horror and mm -hmm. it's really interesting that they they are to me very very much in their feel so the first mm -hmm. one a hope in hell is a lot of the fun of lots of demons with eyes where their heads where their noses should be and mouths <laughs> multiple mouths and and you know multiple arms and it's it's a little like the star wars cantina scene in places so there's mm -hmm. and there's trickery and fairy tale mythological fun then we get into passengers and suddenly the tone and the mood is more realistic and far creepier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it is. Um, what happens in in Passengers with John D is, and again, it's it's this, there's something like, you, you can have horror where you've got jump scares and you've got, you know, horrific things and blood and violence and all of that kind of stuff and that sort of fear thing going on. But again, when you combine it with that humanity, the humanity of Rosemary, you know, the woman just driving him, you know, through this town and being kind to him um, and then seeing his complete inhumanity to her. Um, even though he had had this like really kind of warm 
sweet conversation with her as they, you know, drove to this town. Um, there is that that mixture of um, of the human within humane that just makes it so much more gripping and so much more interesting. Um, and I, I love that about about these stories. I mean, uh, there's that human element in um, in Passengers, which is the second issue, and then the first one where we're just kind of running through hell. Um, you know, and I, I really hope that this doesn't come off as an insult because it sounds really bad but like everything in there is so ridiculous as all this rhyming it had kind of it felt sort of like dr susie to me you know um the ways in which these demons are are drawn almost like the you know the the what are they the snitches with the stars on their bellies you know absolutely i also had a note to myself that there was a dr mm-hmm. seuss aspect to this and it's this yeah. sort of inventive playful side. However, the rhyming mm-hmm. demons is not a Neil thing. That was I uh-huh. there there are rhyming demons. See if Josh Un- Unra was here, he would uh-huh. know yeah. the entire sourcing of this. I don't know if it was I know Alan Grant did a lot with right. the demon Etchigan. I think uh, I, I just looked this up for this. I think it was Matt Wagner had done an Etrigan mm-hmm. miniseries. And Etrigan himself was originally a Jack Kirby character. But Oh, yeah. So, so I think what Neil is doing here is he is deliberately pulling on all these different strands of comic book lore and world mythology lore. And he's just having a ball. So... One of the things that I noticed this time around, and I can't remember if I noticed it back in the uh, mm-hmm. early 90s, at the beginning yeah. of issue five, the artwork looks really different. And mm-hmm. there's a reason for that. That's because we're in the dream of Scott Free, also known as Mr. Miracle. And this is a mm-hmm. character created by Jack Kirby. He was a writer and an artist and a wildly creative innovator. People have called mm-hmm. him the William Blake of comics. Yes. Uh, so mm-hmm. if you if you want to, you know, you're you're going on a date with an artist uh, who knows anything about comics, you, you drop, you know, Jack Kirby references, and and uh, you're you're in, you're in. <laughs> so that that more angular style, mm-hmm. the difference of the color there, that is sort of a very meta commentary because we're in Scott Free's um, dream Mm -hmm. and Scott Free was a character. He was, uh, I think it was a, a I I had to look this up. By the way, one of my favorite collaborators, Alain Morissette, um, he is a huge Kirby fan Mm -hmm. and he's always talking about Mr. Miracle and about Big Barda. Mm -hmm. I think he's got a crush on Big Barda. Um, So uh, Scott grew up in Get Granny Goodness's Terror Orphanage. Oh. And mm-hmm. uh, I I had to look this up. I know Alain talks about this a lot. He's from Belgium. So I always am hearing Granny Goodness's, uh, you know, <laughs> a terror orphanage in his accent. But uh, anyway, so, so that's one of those moments where we are seeing how people's perceptions are affecting not just what we see, but the style in which we see it, the scrim through which we see it. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, Kirby, Jack Kirby is somebody that we've talked about a lot. Of course, um, I'm very familiar because of having worked on uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast, Listen Up A-Holes, working again with, with Joshua Unruh, who is going to get shout outs, I think, all 
all the time because of his incredible encyclopedic knowledge of everything comics. Um, but uh, but I first learned actually about about Jack Kirby years ago when I started listening to a band called Kirby Crackle, which is a geek band. They sing geek songs. Um, but I when I wondered what Kirby Crackle was. And then when I started working with Joshua Unruh, I asked him about that. And he was like, oh, yeah, it's the, the lightning crackle that comes from Jack Kirby's uh, drawings. So, um, yeah, and I can see that connection. And when I saw the, you know, Granny and the Nightmare and all that stuff, at first I was like, okay, I don't understand what the hell's going on here. Um, and, you know, Jack Kirby, just an absolute legend. Um, so when Mr. Miracle, when this story started and we find, we went into this and there was this grandmother and there was these horrifying things and these people hanging on spikes and everything, um, it, I figured it was a dream, you know, because so much of this. I mean, obviously, we're living within the landscape of dreams. We're talking within the language of dreams, um, you know, which is really interesting. Um, and I figured all of that had some kind of historical anchor um, within, you know, the rest of the world building. So, um, so it's neat to see that connection. It's one of two places mm -hmm. that we really see how subjective Sandman's appearances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's an interesting thing that is being presented to us that we see Sandman with his bone white skin mm -hmm. and his sort of 80s yeah. rocker hair. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and he is, he seems to never have a shirt under his coat. Yeah. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> then he goes into hell and Etrigan, the rhyming demon, mm -hmm. takes him past a place where some people are being held prisoner and one of the people there is Nada. Mm -hmm. And we discover that you know, she was a, a great love of his mm -hmm. and that she's been imprisoned there. And we're beginning to get the feeling that that may have something to do with Dream. Mm -hmm. So it, that is just cool enough and that Etrigan's kind of messing with, yeah. with Sandman's mm -hmm. head. But all of a sudden we see this woman who is... African mm -hmm. and and then when we uh, turn back to the Sandman now he is African too mm -hmm. yeah I thought that was really interesting how we have all of these identities and she calls him I, I, I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation but Kai Cool right um, which is such I, a neat another identity for him you know um, yeah. and we have like it's it's so incredibly evocative and even knowing nothing about the history here. One page, right? We see never trust a demon, no matter what, if they have a hundred motives, 99 at least are malevolent, right? Um, walks him past, you know, where he has to walk on this ledge very, very close to the cells. She sees him and she's like, you've come to free me. You know, I'm here because of you, because, you know, he was mad at her. Um, and then, you know, she says, don't you love me? And he says, yes, I still love you, but I have not yet forgiven you. That's why she's there. She's there until he forgives her and she sees him like the cruelty of Etrigan on every level, cruelty to her. By making her see Dream, thinking that he is coming to release her. The cruelty of putting Dream in that position. And the, yes, I still love you, but I have not yet forgiven you. Like, I don't know what the hell is going on there. I don't even care. Like, there is enough in that. Um, there's so much. And again, that that narrative density in comics. And, and especially, I think, in these. I've read some other comics 
these are the most uh, comics are narratively dense anyway but these are some of the most narratively dense comics i think i have ever read um and i find it these would need us yeah I was just going to say these would need that special mammogram for very dense stories. For very dense stories, exactly, <laughs> absolutely. There, it's just so interesting. Um, and I was wrecked by that page, knowing nothing about anything. I had no idea who Nada was before that page, and then I watched, I read that page, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is terrifying!" And then he just walks and leaves her there, and that's it. She's just still in hell, clearly suffering a great deal. And I don't know what she did that was so bad, but I really want to find out. And you will. Ah, and you will. Yay. I'm very excited. It, it's really a very rewarding thing that nothing is thrown away. Mm -hmm. There are sometimes snippets of, of stories that we won't completely see fleshed out. Mm -hmm. But the major ones are, and even some of the minor ones, mm -hmm. before we finish this ride, we are really going to find out a lot of, there are wonderful side mm -hmm. excursions, and then sometimes they become main excursions. Oh, God, it's so interesting. I'm really, really enjoying this. And the thing is, is that there's so much, there's so many references to things like the Scott Free stuff. I had no idea. We spent uh, two pages, I think, which is a lot of time for, you know, comics like this um, on his dream in Granny's, you know, House of Horrors or whatever, like, um, and, and all of that felt like this, it, you know, I didn't understand it. I didn't know the references. I didn't know where it was coming from. Um, but still, it it brings in this, this kind of richness of the world. And it's one of those things that, um, that I think, when you're reading comics, you kind of sign up for that. You sign up for there is so much happening here and some of it is going to fly right over you. If you don't understand the context of it, just enjoy it in the moment and keep on trucking because there's just so many things. I found that when we were going through uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, Joshua Unruh would come in every week with Four Color Facts and talk about all of the references in that um, and all of the things that, that, that they were kind of Easter egging inside of all of these stories. And it was like, after a while, I was like, oh my God, you know? Um, and I find it really, really interesting kind of part of the genre is that the storytelling world itself is so incredibly broad. The universe in which you're working is so incredibly broad that you're just going to be pulling all of this stuff up, which is something that Neil does in general, you know, like in all of his work, I've, he pulls from existing places and and you know spins up a story you know into gold it's always so interesting um one of the things that i really responded to and i mean the thing is like whenever Whenever you read fiction, which is part of the magic of fiction, right? The magic of fiction is that it is this magic mirror and you look in it and you see yourself, you know, you see yourself reflected through whatever the fiction is. So when you're looking at the fiction, you always see it through your own lens. And for me, I, what I keep seeing in all of this week after week, as we keep talking about it, is Dream's trauma and his experience of trauma. Um, so the first page you know, of a hope in hell completely socks me in the gut. Um, he's touching the sand. He's trying to reconnect with himself. And then it is time for me to walk the abyss, time to reclaim my own. And, you know, for me, having been through a pretty significant trauma through the last few years of my life, I, I look at that and that 
that need to reconnect with yourself to know who you are, you know, um, and then reclaim. You have to go through your life and reclaim every little thing from that trauma, you know? Um, so I look at that page and I was just so struck by how beautifully it kind of expressed that feeling for me, you know? Um, and again, fiction is a magic mirror. Everybody sees it through their own lens. Somebody whose experience is something else may have seen something else in that. But for me, this story, he's going out, he's getting back the things that were lost, you know, that is for me a trauma narrative. That was my experience. That was my trauma narrative about getting back the things that I had lost from it. Um, and I just found that first page to be so incredibly powerful. I stared at it for such a long time and was just so struck by it and found it so incredibly powerful. And I love that part of this, you know, time to reclaim my own. There's just something about that, that, that mission that I absolutely love for Dream. Absolutely. I, for me, I also notice how much the storytelling is grounded in someone's personal journey. Yeah. And one thing that I thought might be good to point out is how captions are being used here. Mm -hmm. I don't know enough about comics history to say if it's the first or the yeah. second or what usage mm -hmm. it is. But when I was a kid, captions were used in a much more utilitarian way. Mm -hmm. It was sort of now kids, you know, the mm -hmm. Batman is is hiding here and there's so sometimes you'd get literary and poetic moments, but they tended to be mm -hmm. a little more remote. And often you'd get with Stan Lee, you'd get those little asterisky footnote yeah. mm -hmm. uh, asides. But this is real first person storytelling. Yeah. So a lot of these captions are getting us into dreams experience mm -hmm. and i think that that more personal form of storytelling it's it's part of a departure you notice there are also no thought balloons mm -hmm. i think thought balloons fell far out of favor around this time mm -hmm. i mm, think they might even be coming back a little oh, bit yeah. but mm -hmm. uh but but so the captions are are giving us a chance to peer into dreams head well yeah it's a first person narration versus like a you know a third person omniscient third person removed right um which is what you might have gotten in captions you know prior to this um so yeah i i loved the way that that narration was i loved how personal it was um it was really really good one of the things too that i noticed um you know when of course he is going he's descending through hell you know, to to get to Lucifer so that they can have a chat, you know. Um, and it, there's this world building done with the Wood of Suicides, right? Um, so the Wood of Suicides, uh, you know, I, I had presumed, you know, stems from this idea that some religions will uh, prescribe to. That is, if somebody commits suicide, they go to hell. Right. Um, and so you see these um, these trees, these leafless trees reliving their the end of their life and why they did it and why they made that choice. Um, and the thing that I found so interesting about this as a piece of world building is that uh, Dream walks through and he says it used to be a wood and now it is a forest. 
Um, which makes me think that like this again is the footprint of Roderick Burgess's greed and evil that by taking dream away, more people were in enough pain that they then, you know, committed suicide. And what a beautiful moment of world building that is as he is wandering through, you know, hell. Um, it's, uh, it's a terrible, Thing to to have to read and see it's so powerful um, and this was again another one of those moments that just hit me dead in the face I I think that the wood of suicides may be part of Dante's Inferno mm-hmm. I think that may be part yeah. of that geography of hell I'm I'm suspecting that it is mm-hmm. but it is very like Neil to then also fit it in and connect it up yep. with the mythology that he's creating here with with um Roderick Burgess mm-hmm. and and Dream's capture. And I also think there's something so poignant about these very human trees. Yeah. And you know, I can see it as a story in its own right. Yeah. Th- this is so much of what I love about Neil's storytelling that he leaves so many nooks and crannies where stories can collect. Yeah, God, it's just, it's such a wonderful piece of world building um, and so striking and so sad, you know, and you see these, you know, all all the demons seem to be having a big party, you know, um, but the human souls that are, that are in hell, like, um, we see, we see that in Nada, we see that in The Wood of Suicides. Again, it's when you bring humanity into this horror that it, it it's like blooming, you know, yeast for rising bread, right? It just blooms and then you've got something you can work with, something really, really rich. And I love that. Um, okay, we got to talk about Lucifer a little bit. Um, Lucifer looks like David Bowie to me. I'm assuming that was intended. That was the original intent that it was supposed to be a a David Bowie. You know, we had Sting, uh, supposedly uh, inspiring the look for Constantine. Um, and now we have a David Bowie as Lucifer. Um, and Lucifer appears to like really super hate dream. Um, so I'm guessing there's some kind of bad blood in the history there. I, I first with Bowie, I think that the original idea mm-hmm. is that the description, it, it ties in with, I believe, what are some Kabbalistic uh, descriptions of angels mm-hmm. as being neither male nor female in mm-hmm. some uh, respects that they're sort of androgynous. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's going into that sphere of androgyny. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty sure about that. Mm-hmm. As for the bad blood, I, I don't remember if there was a specific beef between them mm-hmm. from before, yeah. but I got the feeling that there there is a lot of political maneuvering. There is uh-huh. a lot of this sense that the Sandman is is coming as a a head of state in his own right, mm-hmm. but he has lost power. He they they kind of disapprove of each other. You can tell that. Yeah. The Sandman is just appalled that Lucifer would agree to a power share. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, mm-hmm. so I, I, I got some of that feeling of of a political maneuvering, strained, di- yeah, strained diplomacy. It's Biden and Putin. 
<laughs> yes, or maybe even Boris Johnson. Maybe, maybe. Um, well, I think it's going to be wonderful. As I was reading this, I was imagining Gwendolyn Christie playing this role in the Netflix series. And I have to say, was so excited for uh, for what she's going to bring to that. So, um, so I kind of loved that that history between them, that kind of uh, chess playing, you know, what's going on there. Um, And then the rules of hell, you know, we've got the rules, we've got a hierarchy, we've got all of these things going on, you know, they have to battle because whoever the demon was who got the helm got it fair, you know. Um, I find that really, really interesting. Um, But moving into passengers from Hope and Hell, at the end of Hope and Hell, we have this little coda where John D receives this this eyeball from his mother, which, you know, okay, sure. Um, And then we move into this passengers story where we have Dream being a passenger in people's dreams, getting to where he needs to go. Um, And John D in a much more mundane sort of circumstance, uh, getting a gun, you know, uh, killing some guards um, and and running off and, and escaping out of Arkham Asylum. Um, but before we get to that, I was a little confused. And I don't know, maybe you can, maybe there's something I missed or something. In the opening, we see the the body of a guard on the floor. And then we see him talking to a hang a hanged man right? Who says, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm just joking. I'll have my tongue hanging out of my mouth and all this, but it's just a joke. Um, And so to me, it feels like somebody really is hanging there. And John D is just um, hallucinating or having some kind of psychotic break in that moment. Um, But I didn't understand, like, did he hang that guy? Was that also a suicide? Um, Why did he hang him? If he's got the gun, he's just shooting the others. Do you, did I miss something in that early part of this? I don't think you did. I read it as John D is insane. And in his insanity, he is seeing some things that are true without being real. Without being literal. And Mm -hmm. so he's, without being literally Mm -hmm. real. So he sees this hanged man and the hanged man then transforms into the supervillain, the arch villain mm-hmm. uh the scarecrow oh okay and the scarecrow mm-hmm. says and you in the art you can see that he is this slender mm-hmm. spectacled guy yeah. looks a little like lucien but you mm-hmm. can see a sort of an image of a scarecrow behind him mm-hmm. i've just made a very evocative gesture yes. everyone which is <laughs> going to be so so helpful to mm-hmm. you um and he says something which is, it feels sort of a little insane mm-hmm. as well. They're yeah. all insane mm-hmm. there. But there's also, it's, it's you know, this great line about you're going to, you know, John D is off to destroy and rule the world. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the scarecrow, who probably only exists in D's head, says, oh, you're coming back. You know, everyone's going to come back. The outside is so scary. Mm-hmm. It's really, really interesting. I hadn't made the connection that there was a scarecrow behind him, and I'm not familiar with that villain. So uh, so that's really um, interesting. Um, but then we move into John D uh, runs outside you know, buck naked, um, finds this woman who's just driving, uh, puts the gun in her face, says, you're going to take me out to get my ruby. Um, and in the first moment, she's like, oh, you know, my husband, he's in the mafia, he'll kill you. Um, and then John's vulnerability 
with her. And this is the thing. Vulnerability is the absolute, you know, um, the major quality in a character. Vulnerability is the thing that allows us as humans to connect to each other. And it allows her to connect with him. He is naked. He is alone. He is cold. Take my husband's coat. It's in the back seat, you know, so you don't have to be cold and let me just drive you, you know, and they get talking and she asks him, you know, about himself and he talks and they have this, you know, this really kind of warm human connection as we cut back and forth with Dream, who's going to see Scott Free and who's trying to find the information, who finally realizes or gets the information that this Ruby is in a warehouse in Mayhew, you know? Um, and so they're both headed to the same place. John D gets there steps out of the car and says, was that true about your husband being in the mafia? And she's like, no, he's a high school teacher. I just said that because I was afraid. And then he says, I guess it doesn't matter anyway. And just shoots her in the face. I mean, it is, it is so chilling and uh, like wonderful and evocative and horrible, like, you know, horrible in, in horror. Um, and again, when you have the inhuman mixed with the human, that is when horror, I think, works at its best, you know? Um, and I found this like all the hounds of hell and the fighting and the rap battle, you know, between <laughs> the, the envisioned rap battle between um, uh, the the. Toronson and, and Dream, Toronson, right, and and Dream, um, in Hell to get the to get the helm, um, you know, all of that was one thing, you know, but it, it wasn't as chilling and scary as this one moment, and how beautifully that was drawn, where you just see the barrel of the gun and the blood spatter coming back, um, God, beautifully done, horrible, but not in a bad way. You know what I'm saying? Like it yeah, mm -hmm. it belongs to you know, I if you look up horror, they'll talk, you know, there's mm -hmm. there's horror comedy mm -hmm. and there's monster horror and there's murder horror and there's body um, horror um, and yeah, mm -hmm. redneck horror mm -hmm. with banjos and pigs. Right. <laughs> um so there there are all of these different kinds, but for me, they're really are two kinds of horror that are the the main categories mm -hmm. the way i think of it when i'm looking for for a book one kind of horror there is one person left at the end what mm -hmm. i think you know they call the final girl but it's not always yeah. a girl there is somebody who is pure enough of heart that they come out mm -hmm. to rebuild on the ashes of what was yeah and then there's the kind of horror where no one gets out unscathed. Mm -hmm. There, um, you know, you you think that perhaps that the person has gotten out and then they turn toward the camera and you see a glint in their eye and you're like, oh, no, yeah. you too are a pod person. Mm -hmm. And and you realize that, that everything has now gone to hell. Mm -hmm. So th that it, it's it's really interesting to me that you've got that moment, which is the good, the compassionate, mm -hmm. the um, you. There is nothing you can do, and no way that you can be that will save you. Horror is is contained within the, this arc in which we've just seen Dream in Hell, and he won his battle with the word 
hope. Mm-hmm. What is what is so powerful that all the demons in hell cannot, yeah. you know, rise up against it mm-hmm. because they would lose all their power if people didn't have hope. Right. Then they would also not have despair. What, what use is um, hell if the people there have no hope? Right. Yes, mm-hmm. and have no other, you know, so it's this idea that it is it is our great strength, it is a kind of weakness mm-hmm. um, in the sense that, I guess, you know, as you're holding on to hope, well, I, is it a weakness as well? I mean, it, it is... It is it, the idea that we be. live by the contrast. It's a vulnerability. Yeah. I mean, it's a vulnerability, right? Vulnerabilities are the things that can hurt you. And the thing that you hope for, Nada, as she sits in that cell, is hoping for Dream to come and release her. And in the moment, she sees what she's hoping for pass by her and keep walking, you know? Um, that is you know, the devastating part of hope, that moment when the light goes out, when the hope is gone. But at the same time, hope has the power to sustain us through everything, you know, through anything. Hope is the thing that gets you through. Um, And it is only when, you know, you succumb to despair that everything gets dark. Hope is the light. Um, And so I, you know, I find that I loved that moment, you know, with Dream where he's like, you know, he's playing down that final card and he's like, I am hope. And then Koranzan or Choranzan or, uh, you know, Chorizo says, um, you know, he can't do anything. He's just completely stumbling and has nothing, cannot think of anything that beats hope. You know, um, and I, I found that to be like a really incredibly powerful moment in a story that was, again, you know, it was all these demons. It was all this like it was all this kind of, um, you know, hyperbole of hell sort of thing, you know. Um, and then we have this moment where just the one thing that shuts all of that, um, you know, that kind of chittery, hellish nonsense down is hope. I mean, that's the power. Yes, and it's a place where it's clever mm-hmm. because that's what's winning the contest. But it's it's also more than just clever. Yeah. I have to say one thing. So there's so much glorious artwork in this mm-hmm. and expressive artwork, the ingenuity of all the demons and, yeah. and, and the architecture of hell. I, I do have one uh, slight you know, uh, dissatisfaction, I guess Mm -hmm. I would say, in that I think that Nada is supposed to be a really beautiful woman. Mm -hmm. I know that she's been in prison for 10,000 years. I look like crap after just one sleepless night. (laughs) But I don't know that the artwork completely conveys how beautiful she is, Mm -hmm. how tormented she is. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But um, but yeah, but that's that's a small note. Yeah. Yeah. Also, like, I don't know. I think that the um, the reliance of a woman's value being expressed in her beauty and in visual media, um, you know, we do that so much. So the idea that, you know, we see her and she's, you know, I mean, she's not, you know, hideous. She's just not that kind of like boobs up to her chin, sort of, you know, clad in leather, typical kind of of feminine beauty that we see kind of illustrated. She is not a beauty in this made for the male gaze. So I actually kind of liked that, 
because Ooh. Dream, this this you know amazing, like loved her, and the idea that you don't have to be. Um, you know, this, this unbelievable classic conventional beauty in order to be worthy of love, you know, to me, I kind of appreciate that a little bit, but I get it like, because, you know, canonically she is this great beauty and she wasn't necessarily drawn, you know, to represent that kind of beauty. Um, but also that he would always see her as beautiful. Like we're seeing him through her eyes and she is using the name that she had for him that he sees her, you know, maybe that way, maybe the I woke up like, like literally woke up like this, not the fake I woke up like this, but just, you know, it's been it's been a long time, 10,000 years in hell, take it, take it out of you. Um, so yeah, I um, but the artwork, you know, absolutely, I think is, um, is just incredible. And one of my favorite pages too, um, is the one where, uh, where dream, you know, he's in the warehouse, he finds the ruby, and we we just heard in D's, you know, scene how corrupted the ruby was, you know, from everything that he had done to it over the years. Um, and then and then he just crumbles to the ground, you know, falls down in the red light of the ruby. It is so corrupted that it brings him down. And I think that it's it shows how powerful D is. And that's one of the things that you always want to do. Like here we have an endless, right? You know, it's a pretty powerful dude. You know, he was able to beat the other guys who captured him by just waiting him out. Like he has all the time in the world, like literally. Um, and here we have John D, who is a person who struggles you know, with his, his mental state, you know, um, and is, is clearly, you know, um, got a lot of evil, you know, kind of going on in there and a lot of things happening. Um, but he's human, you know? And so you look at here, we have dream an endless who just, you know, went to hell on a typical Wednesday and got his helm back and, you know, battled the demons of hell and, and, you know, got, got his helm back and then travels through dreams. Like he is incredibly powerful. So to illustrate how powerful D is because he actually managed to take, to booby trap an endless, you know, that's kind of neat. That's kind of a neat matchup. It gives us it 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 makes the power differential so much less than what you would expect. You would expect Dream to be able to swat D away like a fly, and that's not the case. Yes, and I I don't know that we are meant to think that D did it on purpose. Mm -hmm. He was just trying to but he's tamper and enough. and make the. Yes, he was making the ruby his own, mm -hmm. and so it is something that the Sandman can no longer just incorporate back into himself. Right, but I mean, that's a, whether he it, meant to do it to, yeah. to dream or not. Like yeah. that's a that's an incredible power, and that evens out the kind of power differential that you would expect between these these two adversaries. You know. Which is a really important thing mm -hmm. to do. You don't want to pit your very powerful hero against someone who's just toothless naked and uh, yeah. not very together. Right, exactly. Which is also what John D is. It, it, he is. He is very complex. He has a lot of things, which I think is very, very cool. And he's, 
he's never gotten his own action figure. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure of this. Oh, my goodness. I don't even know how you would do it. I don't know how you would do it. Um, All right. So before we go into uh, Lucien's library, I just wanted to pull out uh, a few of my favorite lines here. I love this. Never trust a demon from page 111 in the Kindle version. Never trust a demon. He has 100 motives for anything he does. 99 of them at least are malevolent. You know, um, I th- I read that and I was like, ah, oh, that's beautifully expressed. Um, and this is right on the page where he's being traipsed past nada, you know. Um, and then, you know, just I am hope. How powerful is that? I am hope. I thought that was so great. Yeah, no, those are wonderful. Mm-hmm. I... I love the contest between the magicians. Mm-hmm. So I loved there are many ways to lose the oldest game. Mm-hmm. Failure of nerve, hesitation, being unable to shift into a defensive shape, lack of imagination. Mm-hmm. And I thought how that feels like in any negotiation, <laughs> right? In, in any high stakes negotiation, these are all the ways mm-hmm. that, that you can lose. Yeah. Um, I loved the scarecrow or the, the scarecrow in, in John D's mind yeah. saying, yes, yes, but we always come back here. It's so scary outside. And it's because we know that no matter how many times the Joker mm-hmm. and the Riddler and all of these guys get out of Arkham Asylum, somehow they always get put back in. Mm-hmm. So I, I I loved it as, as, you know, sort of them as dealing with their craziness, mm-hmm. which keeps bringing them back to the same place, yeah. which... Uh, feels kind of relatable to me <laughs> and of course trust me i'm a doctor <laughs> <laughs> that's a classic line <laughs> i think that might be you know what what goes with the action figure of john d oh my god seriously now i want that action figure well no i don't but i do i do but i don't um <laughs> all right so now we're going to move into lucian's library warning to everybody this may include spoilers we're going to be going a little bit behind the scenes and kind of talking outside of the text of the stories that we're reading today um so one of the things that you had um in your notes for lucian's library is talking about the world mythology can can you talk to us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Well, so first of all, I, I want to take us back. This was um, the Sandman was still going on, but at this point, I was working on the spinoff for that that became the Dreaming, mm-hmm. and that was a, a spinoff series. And I, I went to uh, Neil's house, and it was late at night. We were in his office, which I remember being on a lower level. Mm-hmm. And his, his daughter, Holly, came in, the same daughter that a few years earlier I'd heard the bedtime stories with. And uh, and she asked him and he said, not now, darling, daddy's working. And she said something like, well, I don't see what it is that you do that's such a big deal. All you do is take other people's ideas and steal <laughs> them in your stories. And she storms off. Oh, my and there's God. A Beat mm-hmm. and then with, with perfect timing, Neil turns to me and says, "You know, she's absolutely right." <laughs> and, oh my god! But the 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 truth behind that for me is that he has read so much world mythology mm-hmm. and he's digested it. You know, yeah. for all of us, we can find stories that we want to riff on in our own writing. We'll. You know, we want to mm-hmm. retell King Lear or whatever it is, yeah. but it really helps if you've done a deep dive and you've digested the material enough. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it comes across as your own. And so in that 
uh, battle, the battle of transformation between Shorenson and Sandman. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that that's from Puss in Boots, uh-huh. where Puss in Boots, you know, uh, battles the ogre. Mm-hmm. But there's also, I think there's uh, one in the Arabian Nights where an Ifrit and the king's mm-hmm. daughter uh, battle. Um, there, There's instances in Finnish mythology mm-hmm. and, and uh, lots of other mythologies. Actually, um, Steel Eye Span, when I was a little girl, had a the, medieval rock was a thing mm-hmm. in the 70s. <laughs> and so Steel Eye Span was a, a, an English band that had a song called Two Magicians. And it's all about this woman trying to get away from this guy. And, you know, she'll turn into a, a corpse and he turns into an undertaker. And uh. Anyway, so it's it's got a fine, long tradition to it. Mm-hmm. Um and then, but I love the fact that Neil made it fresh and modern by, you know, it's not just in hell, mm-hmm. but he gives it the Mrs. Maisel treatment 30 <laughs> years before that show was was an idea. And there's this whole borscht belt aspect mm-hmm. of it. So I, anyway, I think that as the series progresses, Neil goes more and more into these wonderful folk world mythology mm-hmm, uh tales mm-hmm. and those are some some of the the there are longer story arcs and they are interspersed with these sometimes single issue short mm-hmm. stories and i love those and years later of course neil uh was given a chance to write a book about world mythology mm-hmm. a norton mythology book and he asked me if i would help him mm-hmm. as a, a sort of research assistant come book doula mm-hmm. and uh in the end we ended up narrowing in on just one mythology and that became the book of norse mythology oh, that's so cool oh my god yeah the neil pulls through the ground you know it's it's it kind of is like a superpower you know where he all of these things in mythology these stories that that we as humans have been telling you know for millennia are so deeply charged with the human experience, you know, uh, the human experience expressed through metaphor, you know, and magic, um, so that we can step back from it and take a look at it, you know, um, kind of boil down to its essence. And Neil's ability to pull that essence kind of through the ground and form something with it. It's like those people who make cows out of butter, you know, um, it's it's fascinating to see him kind of wait, sculpt wait. these stories. What people make cows out there of are butter? butter sculptures. People do butter sculptures, and they do like cows, and they do you know like kind of like wax figures. I would bet that somewhere someone has has sculpted Neil Gaiman out of butter. I would I would guess that's probably happened. Anyway, it's a whole thing. But the point is. <laughs> Um, you know, Neil has the ability to do that. And he does that in his stories where he'll kind of pull from this material. And I am not at all surprised to discover that he is extremely well-versed in all of these different mythologies, because you do see these resonances coming up in his stories all the time, um, which is part of what makes them so much fun, you know? Um, so it's, it's, it's a part, I think, of what makes Neil really, really magical. And I recently 
have been watching his uh, his master class on storytelling. Um, because what I teach is craft. You know, what I teach is here's your protagonist. Here's how protagonists work. Here's your structure. Here's how structure works. Here's all of this stuff. Narrative, how to build character, all of that kind of stuff. That's the craft. That's the stuff you can put your back against. But the thing is, is that the craft is just allows you to build a stage for your magic to dance upon. Right. Um, and when I think about the person who best exemplifies the power of magic in storytelling, it's Neil Gaiman. He's the one that I think of. He's the one that I talk to my students about when I'm like, I can't teach you magic. Nobody can teach you magic. Magic is just magic. You know, you have to discover what your particular magic is itself. The stuff that I teach, the the craft that's universal storytelling, blah, 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 blah. But your magic is going to come from somewhere. Neil's magic comes from the these resonances of human experience throughout the millennia that he's pulling through, you know, um, which I find so wonderful and engaging about his work. Um, but anyway, so anybody who wants to learn the magic side of things, like learn by reading Neil Gaiman. He is probably one of the, the best examples that I use when I'm trying to explain explain magic to people, I go to Neil Gaiman. He's he's like the number one example of that. And I think his masterclass on storytelling really talks about kind of how to access your magic, how to figure out your magic, which I really, really love. I go back to it all the time because magic is the hard part. You can learn the craft. You can get your back up against all that stuff. But magic is the hard part and accessing where yours comes from takes a while to figure that out. Um, but back to this, um, one of the things that they talk about is the hell's hierarchy, right? We come back, we've got, you know, Lucifer who was in charge and now he's got a couple of of vice senior vice presidents, I guess, on either side. Um, he has to rule and, and dole out territory and whatever it is that's going on. Um, can you talk a little bit about about hell and the world building of hell and and what's going on there with that hierarchy? So I came on after this storyline, and I was there when we returned to hell in Season of Mists, and. I remember these editorial meetings where we would be talking about the geography and hierarchy of hell mm -hmm. because we had Hellblazer written by Jamie Delano going on at the same time as we had uh, Sandman. And then we also had Garth Ennis's Preacher. Mm -hmm. And they all had these different uh, senses of hell and who was ruling mm -hmm. hell. And I remember... I think Karen Berger had a wonderfully live and let live feeling about the book. Mm -hmm. She did not want to enforce there is one version of hell and this is how it has to be. It has to be consistent mm -hmm. from Vertigo and from all of the DC titles, which may have not lent itself to a vasty to use the word that they keep using in these issues, a vasty movie empire mm -hmm. as well. But it, it was really good for writers' creativity. But I, I do remember people trying to do a little bit of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. So I am guessing that some of this whole hell hierarchy stuff probably had something to do with stuff that was going on in other comics like Hellblazer. And uh, But I, I just – it really was – incredibly amusing to me. I had these moments where I was in the editorial meetings. I was thinking, I cannot believe that my, you know, little bit of, of I, I went to a, a Jewish school where I was studying mm -hmm. um, the Bible in Hebrew and, and we would, you know, discuss little excursions into mythology. Mm -hmm. And 
So I loved that we were going on these these trippy <laughs> talks about, well, okay, so if it's Lucifer in this book, but it's Beelzebub in that mm. book, and that's okay because there's sort of different divisions of hell. So yeah. yes, that's, that's the hierarchy of hell. <laughs> I find that so interesting. But here's a question that I have for you, and I don't know if you have the answer at all, but I found this really interesting. Um, on page 114, again, this is, I'm reading the Kindle version. Uh, Lucifer says, some years ago, the dark, the shadow creature came forth to challenge heaven. This episode ended in perhaps a stalemate, but the civil war in hell that ensued tipped the precarious balance of power. Um, and uh, honestly, the first thing this makes me think of is Good Omens, which Neil was writing at the same time with Terry Pratchett. Um, and Good Omens, of course, is I did a podcast on the book and the TV show of that. Um, it's a uh, welcome to the end times for anybody who wants to go and, and listen to it. So one thing that I remembered from Good Omens, not to spoil any of that amazing story, um, is that we kind of do have things sort of ending in a stalemate. You know, we have this big apocalypse that's supposed to happen, and there's the forces of heaven and the forces of hell, and they're all battling each other on Earth. Um, and I, I found it really interesting because I'm like, is this, you know, are we including the Good Omens you know, version Beelzebub was in Good Omens as well. Um, and and I think we had some of these same uh, characters. I believe we had Azazel um, in, uh, in Good Omens, although don't quote me on that because I'm not sure. Um, but there's a lot of demons, you know, floating around, a lot of demons causing all sorts of trouble. Um, and it's funny because I was like, well, you know, he was working on Good Omens at about the same time. It came out in 1990. So I'm curious if there was any kind of like a bleed over from those two worlds. I I doubt mm -hmm. it. I mean, I think that the idea of politics in hell is 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 a fairly classic one. A lot of the demon names are mm -hmm. names from oh, yeah. demonology. So Azazel, um, Azazel, I think, is the goat mm -hmm. that uh, gets sent into the wilderness with the sins of the people. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and there's a goat for Azazel. And why, you know, and goats, actually, if you ever look at a goat, they've got those weird eyes with the yeah. uh, horizontal pupils. Mm -hmm. And uh, having been attacked by a goat oh my myself, I, I do think they're devilish. <laughs> and uh, and the, the other thing that I think is sort of, you know, the whole, um, I, I speak Hebrew, but, you know, mm -hmm. often the way we say these words in, in English is so different. So Beelzebub, it took me years and I suddenly thought, Wait a minute. That's probably Baal Zvuv, which means Lord of the Flies. Oh, I, I don't know why. Interesting. It's, yeah. But because we said, anyway, this is a stupid thing. But <laughs> a lot of these names mm -hmm. are, are, so the, these are later in life, I kind of got more interested in looking up mm -hmm. all of the demonology yeah. and some of the lore. And I feel I've gone down an incredible rabbit hole here. <laughs> But um, but well, yes, yeah. I'm pretty sure that that uh, that may be a reference to some other comics event. I think Neil was pretty good at uh, keeping it all aware of what was well, going on in the other. But books. we have the stalemate in Good Omens, so it yes. sounds like kind of a, a summary of what happened in Good Omens. So I was like, I wonder if that's a you know kind of a, a maybe an Easter egg or something. I'll read it that way. It probably wasn't. But I'll read it that way. I think it's pretty cool. Um, all right. So also, we wanted to have a little bit of discussion of the covers, Dave McKean's covers that he did for these. Yeah, Dave was such an important, integral part of Sandman's look of its success. So 
one of the things I'll say is I I think that when you you walk, especially in in the late '80s, early '90s, you would walk into a store and you would look at a cover, and that is what would tempt you to open up a book. Mm-hmm. And comic book covers tended to have a, a look. They had recognizably, usually if, if it was a Batman book, you had Batman mm-hmm. on the cover. And if it was Wonder Woman, you had Wonder Woman. And there was a fight scene. And all of a sudden, you've got these Sandman covers and they didn't look like anything else. I still remember that first moment when I was handed some Sandman comics. And I was thinking, this looks like surrealist art. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look... Uh, at all like what I was expecting. Um, I later found out from Karen that, you know, she, that Dave and Neil approached together mm-hmm. and they, at, when they were young, little 20-somethings, and they worked together on, on I think it was violent cases. And as I, I mentioned in the, the last podcast, uh, Black Orchid. Mm-hmm. And so Dave was doing the interior art for that. Um I started to dig around and see a little bit more about, I, I found somewhere a, a, a picture with, with a friend's help, actually, uh, who's an artist, a, a picture of the actual mock-up of the, the cover mm-hmm. for for Sandman 1. And it is done as a, um, a combination of, I guess, a collage mm-hmm. and a painting. So you've got that painting with combination of pencil, maybe, mm-hmm. and, and paint of of that mysterious Sandman figure. And then you've got these shadow boxes or, or shelves on either side. Mm-hmm. And there are little objects uh, in, in each of those. And um, I, I think all of those objects are, are linked with elements of the story. And, mm-hmm. and Dave is as good at not just evoking a feel and a sensibility, but really tying in the themes and and words as Neil is. So you've got, you know, and there's a Lucifer cover and you see all this writing and there's bits of, I, I believe it's Paradise Lost mm-hmm. in there with this sort of scarlet. Um, and I found an interview with Dave in which he said uh, some interesting things about the covers at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, by issue eight, this is this was from an interview. Where did I find this interview? Oh God, I'll find yeah, it later. Mm-hmm. But by issue eight, Sandman was already becoming a little strange, as much about ideas as an adventure story. So I thought the covers should represent that. Since the interior artists changed all the time, I was the only consistent visual element. And that hadn't happened yet mm-hmm. at this point. We're still with Sam Keith and Dringenberg. But yeah. I wanted the covers to be a filter, a window of slightly surreal, melancholy, thoughtful imagery to pass through. And he says that for uh, the first issue, all pre-computers, he was wandering around London and finding interesting bits and bobs to use his imagery. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, we liberated a fantastic <laughs> looking broken door from a skip. That's a, uh-huh. a what do you call it? Dumpster. A, a, Right. Yeah. Dumpster. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Brain went <laughs> fritz. And um, so we, we uh, and we found odds and ends in antique shops. People started donating things. I did a signing in London and someone gave me a lamb's heart in a block of resin. <laughs> it got used a few times. And he talks about the different methods of double exposures, triple exposures, um, using old color photocopiers. Mm-hmm. 
So I think it's it's really fascinating to see what he was doing. And there are now collections of the covers he did for Sandman. Yeah. So I just, I think it's... It, at at some point, maybe we should maybe maybe with the next issue, I'll start to talk about the cover yeah. a bit specifically, as well as the as the interior art because I think mm-hmm. it's interesting to look at how you can see a reflection of all of those themes and and with the first five covers mm-hmm. that we've got, we see we start with the Sandman. I think was the second one the Three Witches. I don't know. I don't think they're um, in the Kindle version. So I really need to find these and I take a see. look at so them. Because the ones I, that I, I have are I just was, yellow. It's just kind of like all yellow. It's not sort of background. Which stuff. is really a shame, that is to, a shame. to miss out on yeah. those. But I I believe it is the first one's the Sandman, the second, the Three Witches, mm-hmm. the third is John Constantine, and then Lucifer. And then the the last one is Mr. Miracle, I believe, and there's these bits of circuitry. So maybe it's Mr. Miracle or maybe it's John D himself, that little bits of circuitry Mm -hmm. and the the um and the way he's used the ruby. Now I'm realizing I don't know. But they're all incredibly evocative. They've got these different elements of collage as well as painting. So I love it. I love it. All right. So now that we're talking about the art, what's your favorite page? What is my favorite page? Um, I I had a lot yeah. that I I really loved here. Mm. Um, I think I think actually I've I've looked at the the script and I know you picked one of mine. So I'm gonna <laughs> pick my runners up. I love the fact that as John D and Rosemary drive past a movie theater, the film showing is Night of the Living Dead yeah. with a co-hit Zombie Wolf. <laughs> I love it and. I have no idea if that's an in-joke or an obscure reference, but I I love that it's just this little element there. And um, I also love the panel. There's a little throwaway kindness to John, Mm -hmm. the last Martian. If you wish, you may dream of the city of focative mirrors. That is really nice. And it kind of feels like a reference to um, Rachel, right? That he had kind of given her something yes. nice in her dreams and so now it's kind of sort of his calling card like well you've you've yes. pleased me today so you may have a nice dream <laughs> which i which i really really love um i have to say what about you I, yeah for me i had it was really really hard for me to pick like a favorite page um and I, the winner for me is the the first page in a hope and hell where he's sitting there and his hands are going through the sand and he's trying to reconnect. I think it's a wonderful moment in the story itself, but I also think that it is, um, it's an incredible, you know, kind of evocative trauma experience, which I really, really love time to reclaim my own. I just, and I love the way it looks. I love what it is in the story and the narrative. And I love visually the way it's expressed on that page. Um, for my favorite part, I think that I think what I stole from you is uh, I am hope, right? That moment, the unbeatability of hope, that hope is the absolute pardon, please pardon the expression trump card for uh, for everything, 
you know it's it's all about hope um I don't think I don't think we can say that anymore. Yeah, yeah, I think you can. <laughs> we'll have to come up, we with, have to come up with another the... another phrase for that because it's just a word that I don't ever want to say ever again. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff. I think that like um, God, there's so much. I loved the page where John D is saying goodbye to Rosemary um, and and then shoots her in the face. Horrifying but so beautifully drawn. Um, I love dream traveling through all the people's dreams to get to the Ruby. And then of course, through your dreams, my sleeping children, you had a passenger and you never knew, you know, um, I love when he's sitting at the front of the bus next to a bus driver who has a pumpkin for a head. I just, all of it. It's just so cool. Oh, oh, oh is there something and- behind that? That's Merv Pumpkinhead. I don't know Merv Pumpkinhead. Oh my god! You you will. I'm you so will. excited about that. But I I also just I need to call out you know the coolness of the art yeah. because I, I I called out my favorite story parts, mm-hmm. but I have just my hat off to that wonderful double page spread of all the demons. Mm-hmm. When I think about going there, it's it's one thing as a writer yeah. to say, give me demons. Some of them have three breasts, some of them have four <laughs> heads. Some of them are kind of smiling at the camera. You know, but, but and, you know, the mm-hmm. artists had to spend hours and hours to really create mm-hmm. that, you know, it's like a Cecil B. DeMille, yeah. you know, Ten Commandments hell moment. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just, you know, I... And I am there for it. it. It is really cool. I also love the nightclub scene. There's actually, you know, all of this crammed in yes. stuff in the nightclub scene, including one really goofy kind of demon that's kind of waving at the camera oh my God. As, if, as if it's being filmed. And I I just, I, I love those lighter oh moments Oh my God, too. Dreams Fedora. You know, I mean, my God, (laughs) it's so like the jazzy nightclub kind of beat poet sort of, you know, setting. God, there's so much in this. It's really, I have never struggled so much to pick favorite parts. I always have favorite part at the end of everything. Yeah. Sandman as a beat poet is just now I'm seeing that. And I, I love it so much. All right, if you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Shipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. Guys, we have an editor of Sandman on the show. Ask your questions, send them in, email us. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish Media Producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jonathan, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. And this week's special message for our power producers, let us hit the kitchen. I have a secret stash of Oreos of which you are welcome to partake. I love that line. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, and never trust a demon. We will be back next time with Volume 1, Preludes and Nocturnes, Issues 6 and 7, 
24 Hours, and Sound and Fury. Until then, what power would hell have if those imprisoned here were not able to dream of heaven?